Hello everyone, thank you for joining with us today on the Women in Foreign Policies podcast. This is Kritika Narayanan, Women in Foreign Policies podcast editor. And today I will be talking with feminist researcher and mediator from India, Kirti J. Kumar. Kirti J. Kumar is also the founder of the Gender Security Project, which is a think tank that works at the intersection of gender, peace, security, feminist foreign policy and transnational justice. Kirti hopes to center voices from the global south within the context of the feminist foreign policy agenda. Thank you so much for joining with us today, Kirti. Thank you so much for having me here, Kritika. It's a joy. Kirti, I would like to start the interview by asking you about the Gender Security Project, the think tank that you founded very recently. What were some of your motivations behind starting this project and what are some of the things that you're working on right now? So, Kritika, the Gender Security Project is my pandemic baby. Um, and I really like that I birthed a feminist baby. <laughs> during this time without the pressure of social mores. Um, but jokes aside, it was a very conscious decision to shift gears from what I was doing previously. So I used to run a nonprofit called the Red Elephant Foundation. And um, in several ways, just the project that we set out to do, which is peace education for young people towards gender equality, slowly started becoming outmoded because of the fast-paced spiraling of the world. You know, the model we started with in 2013 was no longer as sufficient to a world that was spinning on an axis of heat. Now, between that and the pandemic, and it's not that the pandemic had begun when I decided to close it, it was a thought process and the pandemic was the final nail in the coffin. I decided to switch gears and the automatic shift to the transition for me was informed by my master's degree. I was doing a, a master's in peace and conflict studies in Coventry University and at the time, it really became apparent to me that almost all the resources I was citing, I was given to read, I was prescribed as the be-all, end-all, were male, cis-het male from the Western world. Which is not to mean that there isn't scholarship from women of color from outside of the ambit of Western countries, and which is not to mean that these women have not done women, peace, and security or foreign policy. So it started out as a process of self-study, and then I chanced upon a few very scattered pieces of efforts across the world around feminist foreign policy. But I also realized that it was feminism light. When you label a country doing aid for gender-related work as feminist foreign policy, you're not doing enough. You're not doing justice to the label of feminist. Uh, the idea of feminist discourse, the idea of intersectional feminism, the idea of dismantling structural violence somehow escaped the academic and practical attention of these things. So that was my motivation and that has been my goal, my striving, because as I went deeper, I came to understand that what we call feminist foreign policy has already been practiced, normalized and has existed for centuries. Women have resisted colonialism. Women from indigenous communities practice food sovereignty, land sovereignty, practice ways to keep their communities and their lands tied to the furtherance of their community and not just in capitalistic and colonial ways. This is feminist foreign policy. How about we return the spotlight to where it originally was instead of a hashtag-based engagement that is, again, appropriated by the West? So that's been my motivation for the project. You focus specifically on the feminist foreign policy agenda. And you also mentioned about representation, the importance of representation in the feminist foreign policy space. Within this context, how can we make this space, this feminist foreign policy space, more inclusive and also the importance of intersectionality here. Of course, I want to start by 
where I came into this profession. So when I was in class nine, I participated in the model United Nations and I come from a fossil age where moon was just about beginning. Um, so it was a new thing. It was beautiful to be able to make policy, even if it was in a classroom setting. If it was just young people, obviously charged up on teenage hormones, fighting with each other for reasons they don't quite understand. But that was electrifying and I wanted a career in that space. So I naturally come back home, starry-eyed, I tell my parents I want to be a diplomat, I want to do this and that. But their immediate fear was this is not a heard of profession. And my dad's a lawyer and my parents said, do law, you'll be able to get into some professional uh, program if you fail in this. Now, it's nice that they set me up for failure because that also helped me understand that these are not areas that will come in easy and I have to carve my own path if I went forward. But in so many ways, the absence of representation and role models in that space meant that I would not see this as a default career option. A name like Nirupama Roy, uh, Rao, sorry, a name like uh, C.B. Mutama, these were just anomalies in what is considered a male-dominated space. And back then, they were seen as anomalies, which is very unfortunate because these women went out to do such massive things. Now, growing up without a role model in a field that you want to adopt as your own is a dangerous place to be in because you're starting from an assumption that you don't fit in. You can't do it. You can't belong. So in that sense, representation is much more than just opening up space for people to be the united colors of Benetton, if you will. That's not representation. Representation is about co-opting um, power and redistributing that power in ways that people who have not been part of processes are given a space to thrive in. Um, so when I say representation is important because perspectives are important, I'm not just saying one woman's perspective is representative of all women's perspectives because women are as diverse as women can be. Uh, you and I are sitting in this conversation, perhaps a woman somewhere is listening to this conversation at some point in the future. And the three of us may have certain commonalities, but our lives may be as different as chalk and cheese and whatnot. And that is where intersectionality steps in, because my perspective can inform what my lived experience, which is limited in terms of how shared it is, um, can change a policy or can change a law or can change the future of the implementation of a policy or law. But what about women whose lived experiences continue to be those of oppression because of the privileges I enjoy over them? Can we open up the space more to acknowledge that the category of gender in itself is a spectrum? And within those identities, lived experiences of caste, of race, of color, of language, of nationality, and so much more really make life such a unique experience. It's hard that a world can be run by a few men in power in suits, sitting in a 15-member room, and then deciding the future of the world's peace. They call themselves a security council, so they commodify peace, they securitize peace, they take peace out of the layperson's everyday life. To the point that a girl sitting in Chennai and Chidambaram may be questioned on why they are working in foreign policy. Why not? Why the hell not? Pardon my French. But foreign policy is as relevant to the both of us as it is to the women in the US or the UK or the Netherlands. It's not a default that women in the West have to be made for foreign policy. Girls that look like us, girls that speak like us, girls whose upbringings are so rooted to the earth that we are from, also belong in these dialogue spaces. And that's, I think, where we should be normalizing our engagement uh, in the feminist foreign policy space. Talking about feminist foreign policy, Kirti, the word feminism itself has a lot of negativity attached to it in a lot of circles. When someone comes out and tells them 
identifies themselves as a feminist immediately there is a huge pushback there is hate there is discrimination there are a lot of assumptions people sometimes assume that that person is a man hater so within this context you are going out there and telling people that you are going to do feminist foreign policy do you also experience the same kind of pushback the same kind of discrimination which says hey you know what this is not something that should be done especially in the foreign policy space your thoughts on that so i think as feminists we seem to represent the most uncomfortable f word of all time Uh, and i think that follows us wherever we go right whether it is feminist research methodologies at the grassroots level so just being a feminist and questioning the practices in your household that's a label and that's a social price we are forced to pay though we don't deserve to so in that sense yes the pushback has been very real ever since i opened my mouth and started questioning things that were deeply entrenched in my household for example why why are we celebrating a particular festival that prioritizes the male life over the female life for example right so uncomfortable questioning i think is what they want to push back against if you say feminist today capitalism has co-opted feminism in a very beautiful way that you have product lines that sell well so that kind of feminism is acceptable right if you're wearing a t-shirt that says feminist af and a brand has benefited from it great but if you're wearing that t-shirt and you're questioning the same brand for co-opting um a space that should be one of equality and one of respect they don't like it so pushback is 100% i think part of the job description coming to feminist foreign policy i think the pushback has been diverse now on the one side there is one form of pushback that says look foreign policy has been done by men it is a very dangerous out there field women are not suited for it and this is a trope you and i have probably heard one too many times this is also what keeps us outside of peace tables this is what makes us create our trap to diplomacy channels this is what makes us relegate ourselves to zoom and twitter instead of being in the negotiation table at the same time there is also pushback from within the circles uh, a lot of practitioners of feminist foreign policy have not been given their due under the sun because they haven't used the tag feminist foreign policy i have a really amazing sister and friend called Sally Mabumian who lives in Cameroon and she has been one of the key agents in brokering peace between anglophone and francophone Cameroon you know so much of war that has been underway and the one thing she told me continues to inform the way i think about this which is that western women white women have been excellent at documenting things brown black and women of color have been constantly relegated to doing not documenting and so our body of work is in our embodiment it is in our epigenetics it is in our cell memories it is not written in our documents we don't have the fancy colonizers language to have documented it the way the colonizers did so the pushback that comes in from within this is again in the form of sweeping intersectionality away in favor of essentialism uh we still see situations where women at the peace table are cis het white women uh in india's context brahmin women we have not worked our way into understanding how caste plays into even defining foreign policy ethno nationalism at the hands of indigenous communities like the adivasi community in india has not been at a negotiation table despite the number of wars and conflicts that continue to affect their everyday lives uh, we don't see spaces to even include them because our idea is an us versus them they are not the mainstream 
So I feel like if we are talking about pushback to feminism, we have to acknowledge that within our circles of feminist engagement, there is a very real movement of pushing back and an occupation of space, which in so many ways, as an upper caste woman, I also contribute to. So part of the gender security project is to save that space, is to not make it my backyard to play, uh, but to open the doors of that backyard and break the walls so that whoever wants to sit there gets to sit there when they want. Representation, centering voices from the global south, these are key themes that your gender security project focuses on. Within this context, you also talked about tables of power, where currently all seats are occupied by men. It's difficult for women in general to get into those rooms, get a seat at those tables, be included in those discussions. And the difficulty becomes twofold when that woman is from the global south. And even if that woman gets a seat at the table, there are challenges at each point to be seen, to be heard, to be included in those discussions. So from your personal experience and also from your experiences within the Gender Security Project, what are some of the challenges that women from the Global South face in getting into those rooms, getting into those seats of power? And what can be done to make this space more inclusive for women from the Global South? Well, that's a really intense question. And I'm going to try to, um, to be concise in this because it's my peeve and I can go on. But uh, to start with, I think the biggest challenge is the fact that we have a constant striving um, that is moving away from making our tables longer and as shifting towards keeping our fences higher. And what that means is the exclusion of women and particular kinds of women has both been deeply normalized and so deeply entrenched that that has informed the way we practice the inclusion of people in these spaces. Personally and politically, I think this, whatever I'm going to share, rests on that continuum. So I have either experienced it firsthand or I have heard friends, mentors and seniors in the space that have experienced it. The foremost question is really about inclusion. Uh, many a time, women are included on a peace table or in a negotiation table just to check a box. And they are often included for women's issues. Now, my question here is, is it that only women's issues consider, I mean, concern me? Or am I living in a world where issues that are not traditionally women's issues also concerning me? So a space security paradigm is definitely as much my problem as is sexual violence against women like me in an armed conflict context. A pandemic, a public health response to a pandemic is as much my problem as a political decision to go into a peace treaty or a trade negotiation with another country is. All of these things affect and concern every human being's life on the planet. And my gender should neither enable nor disable me in any way from accessing my due within these policy paradigms. We have gone a very long way in disconnecting the personal and the political. And part of it is because patriarchy has come into the picture. So that's the second major point in the pushback. The inclusion of women has been at the whim, fancy, and at the discretion of men and men in power. And what that means then is they can get to call the shots on what they would fund. In the United States, the decision for the right to abortion is made by a bunch of men. Recently in India, a decision on uh, concerning the marital rape and the um, legal provisions to address marital rape. In fact, a judge of a high court actually said this. He said that we are men with two men on both sides arguing about a matter that concerns women. That is not how it should be. 
But that has been the deeply entrenched formula of being and doing policy, law, and implementation of those policies and laws. The third major challenge that I've also found to be true is the ease with which women have been treated with violence in these spaces. And it's not always overt violence, right? It is also the subtle discriminatory structural forms. For instance, if you see whether that's a Hillary or a Lai Magbawi or a Nirmala Sitaraman, whose politics range across a spectrum that I may or may not even align with on any given day, um, all these women are reduced to their appearance, are reduced to their nexus to the men in their political spaces, are not taken seriously for the views they espouse. Now, if you just see the way, of course, political leaders are trolled, as, is most, as are most people, there's no denying that. But if you look at the subset in the ways in which male political leaders are trolled versus the way female political leaders and non-binary political leaders are trolled, the sheer difference establishes the fact that the hate is so visceral towards women and non-binary people. The violence comes so naturally, it just bubbles up in the most patriarchal ways. It's character assassination, it's body shaming, it's appearance shaming. It is reducing a person to their so-called, um, let's say, position on the fence in terms of their values, in terms of their sex life, in terms of their bodily appearance. And that's horrible. It's horrible. Women, women face that. Non-binary people face that. Uh, men do not. Men somehow escape it. And of course, yes, some may argue that the kind of treatment that, say, Donald Trump received, you know, the whole belittling of his male organ, as it were, as so many people started articulating, that is also informed by patriarchy. It is about who is man enough to occupy that space. And that establishes the norm with which women and non-binary people are also treated. So in, in a word, these points of pushback have existed for me in various forms right from being reduced to getting coffee in a room despite having two master's degrees, despite having 10 years of experience, um, to being the one to make copies of a document that was put together by a bunch of men. Um, these microaggressions continue. They constantly continue. And the goal is to find women, collect together, and then raise the volume so then this rubbish cannot continue. Keithi, you talked about all the different kinds of challenges women face within the foreign policy space. Within this context, how important do you think sisterhood is and women supporting women is? Because within a patriarchal system, women are pitted one against the other constantly. Women are made to compete with each other. And that is what a lot of women are trying to break away from. Women supporting women became a huge campaign. How important do you think centering voices and sisterhood is in this conflict? I mean, it is a conflict of sorts. You're absolutely right about the fact that this is a conflict. Um, conflict, peace is not the absence of war. It is uh, an act of striving towards dismantling systems and structures that get us to a place where justice and peace are normalized. And I think one of the tools that gets us to that point is definitely sisterhood. As somebody who has been on both sides of the patriarchy, and I would say this without any shame because part of reflecting and growing is to acknowledge what you have also been and done in the past. When I was very, very young, in my teenage years, I used to think the whole women's movement was, was a sham because the women around me were out and about doing amazing things. So who said they were unequal? It's only when you start engaging with the system that your worldview changes and you grow out of your teenage sort of limitations that you begin to see what it is, right? 
So patriarchy has, like you very powerfully said, a powerful formula to break anything that can break it, which is to gamify and reduce resources by pitting one against another. Now, I have a huge problem with the development sector and how it makes people receive grants. You need to compete to receive grants. So this is already a field with a very limited pool of resources. And within that limited pool of resources, people are forced to compete to try to do better. The development sector, on the other hand, in all reality, needs all hands on deck to make change possible. If you and I are competing, the last mile on the, on the receiving end of whatever intervention we're going to create will suffer most. Because you and I are competing with limited resources so that the resources don't fall into each other's hands. Our ego is allowing for us to spend more money in making the cause about us and not the action that we're supposed to take. And finally, the impact we are providing is very, very rarely related to outcomes, but more with outputs. Patriarchy uses this formula. It pits women against women. It limits the spaces for women to occupy. It limits the money available for women's causes. It limits the room for women to be in decision-making roles and makes them compete. So if tomorrow Kritika and Kiki have to compete for a single space, my pool of competition is not against 10 men. It's against Kritika because Kritika and I have to compete for one seat. It shouldn't be that way. Kritika and I could join forces and knock two men out of that space and occupy the space because we deserve it. We deserve it. Our lived experience, our expertise is perhaps on par with that of men. This is not coming from ego. It is acknowledging the fact that our comparison point is men who very often have mediocre skills and experience and knowledge compared to several women. It's not coming from an ego trip. Of course, I acknowledge and check that I can be very egoistic, but this was a statement in a generic sense. So the, the limitations that patriarchy imposes can only be fought if we are willing to be an open sisterhood, not just sisters. We have a traditional tendency as human beings to affirm our ways in favor of a confirmation bias. So even in building our sisterhoods, we want to build sisterhoods with those who look like us, those who think like us, those who fall in the same identity pools as us. We don't want to build sisterhoods with those who question identity pools of ours that are privilege-oriented to the detriment of theirs and their communities, which means then that we are very quick to self-serve ourselves um, and continue patriarchal oppressions against those that we believe will question our power. So in doing that, we're replicating patriarchy within our pools of sisterhood. And that is a big disadvantage because who's gaining from it? Patriarchy. So if we are looking at sisterhood, I think the most important thing to acknowledge is within that sisterhood, who am I? What is the place I'm occupying? What privileges am I enjoying? And at whose cost has that privilege come to me? And how can I redistribute my social capital to make these opportunities uh, an equal sharing regime, an equal sharing space. Uh, I don't, I can't stand the ridiculous joke that comes up all the time on WhatsApp, which is if women led all the countries in the world, you'll have a bunch of hostile countries not talking to each other. I think that is patriarchy at work as well. Reducing women to being hostile, um, unapproachable characters that will just become cold people at the end of the day. Uh, so I think the only answer to that is intersectional sisterhood, um, open sisterhood, a sisterhood that welcomes the idea of thriving rather than prioritizing one over another. You talked about memes and it is damaging for young women to, to see such content on social media. 
and these are things that needs to be addressed you talked about a lot of challenges that women face and even if women overcome these challenges and get a space they are made to question themselves for taking up space for making their voices heard they are made to feel guilty they are made to question themselves over whether they are qualified to take up that space how can women overcome this one of the major factors that i see as women and as somebody who has both worked with women in a training capacity and mentoring capacity and as a cishet woman in herself is that we have internalized the patriarchy there is no denying it we pervade we practice it we condone it whether we know it or not sometimes we know it and we check ourselves most times we don't and we allow it to continue right so one part of getting to that point is really unlearning that patriarchy where am i being patriarchal in my thinking where am i um assuming that the dominant frame is what it is and am i asking questions okay these are the two guiding points to really think through any step you want to take but the bigger picture in all of this is really to acknowledge your place in the world uh if your point of comparison is a man and obviously the system has benefited the man has created a structural imbalance in his favor to the detriment of yourself then you already know that you're disadvantaged it's not it's a no brainer you already know that you're stacked up against the system but at the same time you may be producing the same impact to somebody else in your circle somebody else who's less privileged than you perhaps sharing the same gender and sex identity but arguably having a very different identity in terms of caste or race or culture language or religion or whatsoever so it's a constant process of understanding your position in terms of the privileges and the oppressions that exist and it's a constant process of self reflection and introspection because no matter what you do your best intentions can produce the worst impacts so it's never about your intention as much as it is about the impact you set out to have so what are some of the ways in which that impact could be federalized in terms of the disadvantages it produces if it can produce no disadvantage great but if it does how do you mitigate that impact and that i think has to inform our feminist engagement because it is a feminist exercise in itself uh, if we are looking at making space for women why don't we get into a system and change the system enough that the inclusion of women is normalized instead of becoming one more in the patriarchal cog so if i'm the one woman on a board of directors in a company i don't have to be pitted against other women i don't have to be stacked up against women in the community or stacked up against women who want to belong to this space but instead i could start looking at ways to change the dynamic that operates why is this board like this why can't we bring in more women where are the qualified women in this organization what are the points of attrition and i know i referenced a corporate setup but it pretty much applies across the board anywhere because when we're engaging with power disengaging with that power is also very fundamental men can be feminists too and do you think their thought processes are evolving and they are willing to give up space for women for equal representation i'm going to make a fairly controversial statement over here and um, and i'm completely willing to be changed in terms of my views so if anybody who's listening to this wants to change my view on this i'm totally open to it now i think men have gone too far into a state of entitlement that it is their norm it is their norm their assumption is that they are entitled to positions they are entitled to uh, being served they are entitled to being the the default setting whether that's the automobile industry that creates crash test dummies based on the man's body 
or it is even in the language we use to say chairman and um, you know the language that limits the identity to the dominant male so men are not going to give up that power so easily they will see it as an affront to their power they will see it as a cost they have to pay they will see it as some form of an assault on their entitlement and they're not going to be willing to give it up and in that kind of a situation it's very easy to reach an impasse because they are defending and we are wasting our energy in defending our view and we're not being able to do the real work which is often what happens to us right our actual work is taken away because we're busy doing emotional labor asking to be included in these spaces so in these spaces the additional emotional labor falls on the shoulders of women to not only make a case for the inclusion but to also keep making a case for why that inclusion is good for men as well and i don't think that should be the way we really have to work men have a duty to constantly look inwards as well as human beings if they feel that they are entitled over everybody else there is a fundamental error in that thinking because no human can be entitled over any other human it is not the way things are every document that speaks of equality says all human beings are equal regardless of da 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 da, da. so with that in space if your thought is still that you are entitled over someone else that is your inflection point to stop in your tracks literally stop what you're doing and engage with yourself there is plenty of literature available on the internet i mean if you go looking for memes you find it find it by the dozen in the same way spend your time looking for the works of women the works of non binary people and introspect i think it is no longer fair to expect this labor to be done by women and non binary people i think it's no longer right to constantly ascribe the duty to perform this emotional labor on women and non binary people we have come far too long into the world where we have done this and to the detriment of women and ourselves and we see that in our history textbooks kritika i mean growing up did you study about savitri bai phule or did you study about her because of twitter and facebook and the countless hours of emotional labor that dalit women have put in to make her visible in the same way did you and i grow up knowing that the works of hansa mehta is the reason why the un charter speaks of men and women and not just men when when professing equality we as uh, not the un charter i apologize the universal declaration of human rights but men have elbowed these voices out because history is always written by a patriarchal pen in the hands of a victor assumed victor so we seldom know the truths that we have um been prevented from accessing and if we want to find that truth we have to go looking and that duty to go looking is in all of us that enjoy any form of privilege if i am an able bodied woman the duty on me is to understand how a social infrastructure that is made to respond to my body is disadvantaging somebody whose body is not like mine it is my duty because that space is advantaging me and i've had a privilege why can't i learn from that to understand that not everybody has the same privilege so it is it is time for those in positions of privilege to step up to uh, not expect emotional labor and extract emotional labor from those who have been oppressed uh, so long as we are continuing to do that our egos will be self served and an unequal world will continue to thrive keerthi you have highlighted a lot of things within the foreign policy space that we need to address the importance of sisterhood women supporting women women standing up and speaking for their rights within the foreign policy space centering voices from the global south these are all the things that you have highlighted and 
in addition to that do you think infusing the foreign policy space with human qualities like empathy being empathetic to each other do you think these qualities help in making the space more inclusive a hundred percent i think human beings do not need religion they need empathy uh, we are falsely running after a deification i know there are if there are comments on this that are going to troll me i am willing to accept it but i think we have lost the plot in chasing religion instead of empathy every religious teaching may ask you to practice empathy but who is who is right and i'm sorry i centered only religion because it's the first example that came to mind but whether that's a capitalistic corporate way of doing business or if it is a a, a certain way of practicing journalism we are normalizing war mentality and war thinking i mean just think of our public health response to covid we talked about war rooms we talked about declaring a ceasefire on domestic violence during um a pandemic we are so militaristic in our thinking and that militarism is constantly feeding into our hate complex into our privilege complex into our savior garbage into our assumptions and entitlements and last of all into our individual egos and so long as these things fuel us we feel good about ourselves because we think we're wearing a chip on our shoulder which is total bs um the, the truth at the end of the day is if you can't practice empathy whatever field it is that you're working in whether you're a journalist a school teacher or a a homemaker or somebody that's really not even into a professional space yet you have already been set back several steps um because again going back to what i shared earlier everything you do is producing an impact whether you think it intend it choose it or define it and the impacts can be devastating when they're at the scale of a foreign policy but just as devastating when they're at the scale of a grassroots development project so we have to not occupy that is that is the the suffering of these times if you see it right like we followed the westphalian state order that followed um a certain conflict a certain war and that was co-opted into the ways of doing statehood in the second world war and thereafter and today we see that system was actually dead on arrival privileging a few because look at look at what the pandemic has done it's blown the cover off so many ways in which we have been useless as a species and if we're not learning from that well don't look up kitty i would like to ask you about your career journey you founded the non-profit the red elephant foundation which focuses on spreading awareness about violence against women you then went on to pursue two masters in peace and conflict in the uk and you came back to india and you recently founded the gender security project which focuses on feminist foreign policy agenda and within the gender security project you have worked with a lot of big names kirti can you share with us some of your experiences from your career journey your motivations behind pursuing your career in foreign policy and your experiences while working with some of the biggest names in the foreign policy space i will have to be very honest to tell you that um, the definition of working with is very amorphous in this context because my role has largely involved receiving their pieces and sitting with my hands on my face and just reading it in awe and learning um and and i think that speaks to my life experience in itself um yes i acknowledge that i have had the privilege to be in the same room as or share the same space as some giants in the field um but then their gianthood in that space whether that's cynthia enlo or um sonia jun or or lima bawi 
It has only been to the extent of, um, of their names. They are such humble, simple people. They are so grounded. They are so um, rooted to their mission as feminists that this whole persona that has been constructed, this wall that's been built, that we start looking at them from outside, they deconstruct it in their work. Um, I've chatted with Cynthia Enlo about her giraffe. Uh, you know, she has a lovely huge giraffe behind her in her Zoom calls. It always makes an appearance. And she's that down to earth. She establishes for you that no matter how much work you put in, no matter how many years you spend in it, you don't have to feed your ego. You don't have to feed your entitlement. You can continue being a student for life. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak with and alongside Dr. Meenakshi Gopina. And she left me with the most powerful statement, which is in our lives, we have to constantly comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And their lives constantly establish that, the work they continue to do. So I think in any setting, whether I have had the freedom to speak alongside them or to watch them speak or to receive their pieces to publish on the Gender Security Project or to interview them for the documentary series we put together, it has always been one of being a student, um, learning from them. And, and even in this conversation, Kritika, I think I'm sitting with a legend. I have looked up to you. I have learned from your writing. Uh, I never had the opportunity to work with you and that fault is entirely mine. But this for me is a beautiful learning moment. I'm seeing you listen. Of course, folks who are listening to this will listen to this. Uh, Kritika and I are on video right now. And it's a beautiful moment for me to see how empathetically she listens. Um, we're sitting virtually, we're in the same state, yes, we're sitting virtually across two computer screens and an internet connection, but the depth of the connection she's built in this space, folks, this is for you who are listening, is, is just lessons um, being taught at the moment. And Lucy, um, who I also have the privilege to Instagram with every now and then, I think it's just the depth of being rooted to your everyday and presenting that empathy to the people you interact with that uh, stuns me every single time. So... Thank you for being one of the giants yourself, Kritika. Thank you so much for your kind words, Kitty. I would also like to know about your motivations behind entering into the foreign policy space. There must have been a key moment in your life when you decided that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Can you tell us about that? Kritika, I'll tell you something very embarrassing and very honestly. Um, I don't know what that key moment is. <laughs> jokes apart I mean of course I did tell you that when I was in high school uh, middle school I participated in um, a moon and it was a catalyst it made me see a world that I wanted to be part of but I think in some ways that 13 year old girl continues to live inside me because right now I am studying astronomy uh, simply because I want to uh, and I'm putting myself through these courses on Coursera I left physics in class 10 so that's a good 19 years ago don't calculate my age, friends. That's not right. <laughs> Jokes apart. Um, it's just something I I think I like to own. Um, some may see it as a flaw because I'm not setting myself down a single course um, or a single field. Uh, but I, I think the world is so big. It's so big. A lifetime is so tiny. And we it's all in the soaking in of these experiences. So absolutely cherish the democratization of knowledge, the availability of knowledge on the internet. I think I'm an internet baby in that sense. I made some of my most meaningful um, uh, contacts through the internet, lessons learned through the internet. So I can't say there's a defining moment. 
but what i will leave you with at this point on this is that every person i interact with is setting me on the course for some development uh, whether that's personal or professional and i think that has served as a catalyst at every juncture um just having this conversation with you has helped me reflect on so much inside my head and has taught me so much on what it is to ask questions and listen to a person when they are speaking without interrupting beautiful kirti you have been working on a lot of projects which one of them would you consider as your biggest achievement so far and what are some of the projects that you are currently working on so i don't know if i count on any of the things that i have seen or done as achievements um or big achievements for that matter i see them as yeah there were points in my journey when i didn't feel sad when the uh, gray cloud of anxiety did not settle in which is something very real we all deal with in so many ways um so i i think my fear is that if i start seeing something as an achievement i will feed into my ego i will stop my journey there and my train won't move further so i don't see anything as an achievement very honestly it comes from a very selfish egoistic place deeply acknowledge that but i can tell you what i'm working on like i said so i'm teaching myself astronomy using the internet um but i'm also very deeply drawn into space law and policy and i'm really looking at feminism as a model for space faring states um feminist foreign policy concerning the outer space um engagement because we've seen the bezos and the musks of the world angling to get into space and look at that look at that profit making at the backs of so many people who are earning less than minimum wage braving a pandemic to make deliveries and then one man gets to go to space because it's his whim uh and that is, if that is not sit het male capitalism at work i don't know what is right so i think um that's an area i'm really deeply drawn to just engaging in feminist ways of space faring feminist ways of doing and being in the space policy place and that's what i'm doing at the moment i'm also trying to look at feminist disarmament particularly with nuclear weapons so when i say i'm looking at these areas it's a lot of learning before producing anything but uh, on the gender security project there will be curated collections speaking to these areas uh, from experts in the form of written pieces in the form of zoom conversation so that's to come in the year ahead kirti final question what would you like to say to all the young women listening to this podcast right now i think it's important to acknowledge that any foreign policy uh, especially in a hyper connected world like we have today uh, will translate to an impact in the in the last mile for instance a country like iran facing historical levels of sanctions implies that the last mile is facing the brunt of the poverty that that sanctions brought in uh, the violence in yemen that we are seeing unfold has created one of the biggest starvation conflicts in the world at the grassroots level the movement of arms uh, the whole call for global disarmament policy also speaks to a very strong advocacy to end violence against women because the proliferation of small arms in the household has meant that more women are vulnerable in the household more non binary persons are vulnerable at the household this also implies uh, or has an impact on mental health because access to weapons small and light weapons also means that folks have access to means to end their lives because a system has prioritized no gun control and has taken money away from mental health services in the form of suicide and other helplines so i think in many ways then one we have to constantly think about how the personal is the political is the personal it is a continuum it is not in silos um what country your government chooses to help in a peacekeeping mission has effects of a profound nature on you as well 
let me give you an example. India has had the distinction of being one of the early countries to contribute an all-woman troop in a mission to Liberia in 2009. Now, all-women troops are great, but is a feminist approach just about putting more women behind guns? Or can we dismantle that thought process? And that thought process that normalizes the inclusion of more women in the armed forces also normalizes the imposition of, say, an AFSPA. It's a military mindset. It exists on a continuum. Whereas if we had thought about how we can look at including more women in peace trainings, we have the skills, we have the capacity to incorporate more women in mediating roles to put them in peace tables. And then that might dismantle a law like AFSPA altogether. It may repeal that law altogether. So the ripple effects are always two-sided. This Whatever you do produces an impact within and beyond you. And it's the same way for a country dynamic. It produces impacts within and beyond you. And we need to be able to acknowledge that configuration. Kirti, this is not a question, but I would like to ask you about three pieces of advice you would give for young women working within the foreign policy space. The first thing is please acknowledge your privilege. Most women who come into careers in the space of foreign policy have made that decision out of some amount of privilege. It is not an easy decision for women to make. Uh, and especially women who don't have resources to back them up. So please acknowledge your privilege and your positionality and how that can inform what you go out to do. The second thing is please learn as much as you can. Your learning journey never stops, especially in a highly dynamic and observational field like foreign policy. Things are happening like that. In a matter of a tweet, you know that things are changing. So keep reading, keep learning, keep staying aware as much as you can. And the third thing is, please open the space up as much as you can by redistributing your social capital to other women and non-binary people, because it never ends with you because it never started with you. So your goal is to shatter the glass ceiling and make it a new floor for people to walk over. Thank you so much for your advice, Kirti. Thank you for doing this interview with the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. I'm sure a lot of young women listening to this podcast right now were inspired by your words. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Satan Kritika. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Women in Foreign Policies podcast. If you like this episode, please do not forget to like, share and subscribe to the Women in Foreign Policies podcast. We look forward to bring to you more inspiring content about women in foreign policy in the coming months. Thank you so much for your support. This is Kritika Narayanan signing off.